Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Doing that others do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Of all Christ has said so far in the Sermon on the Mount, this very well may be the most difficult and the most challenging to hear. And we have already walked through some pretty significant things. It's quite a statement I just made. I I totally get that. See, the audience that, that, like, think about this. Love your enemies. Who are your enemies? These are the people, like, I want you to think about this in two sections. So the first section is maybe those personal to you. That, you know, maybe you don't get along with real well. Or when they walk in the room or you get around them, you kind of are like, I'm going to go on the other side of the room, and I hope they stay on that other side. Of the, like, I'm just not really, like, we're Midwest nice. Like, let's just call that out. Like, Midwest nice means I don't really treat my enemies bad, but I will gossip about them with other people, and I certainly am not going to go out of my way to help them, and I'm certainly not going to talk to them when I see them at air days. <laughs> they stay on one side of the square, I'll stay on the other, Right? But on the other hand, we do have those people that maybe in your life, when you hear the word enemy, there's a name that comes right into your head. This is a person that has hurt you intentionally and is unrepentant about it. These are people that maybe have done things to plot your demise. I remember when I was a youth pastor, and this is a much longer story that I don't care to go into right now, but there was a guy that was hired that when he came in, he turned out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing and, and basically attempted, or he didn't attempt, he accomplished a coup in the midst of the church we were in, got the pastor that hired him fired and spread lies about him, and then systematically went from staff member to staff member to staff member and got us all fired or got us all to quit. And he walked into my office one day. I was a 30-year, I was a 26-year-old youth pastor with a three-week-old baby, and he said to me, my job is to ensure you never work in ministry again. You remember that, Tara? You guys remember that? I don't know how much we told you about that, but hey, there we are. Um, (laughs) Right? So there's the personal enemies. But at the same time, what what the audience that Jesus was addressing would have instantly begin to think about are those that hate the people of God. People, groups of people that that actively want Christians to be hurt, to be silenced, to be rendered insignificant, and to go away, to sit down, and to shut up. For the Jews, that would have been Rome. As they looked around them all the time and these Roman soldiers were there treating them like dogs. 
It would have been, been all of these other enemies that, that, that hate the things of God. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Love your enemies. See, the audience Jesus was addressing would have known that when Christ, was, uh, when Christ references loving your neighbor as yourself as he begins, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, that he was quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, specifically verse 18, where God tells his people to do this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep going in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that Jesus will quote this same verse again in chapters 19 and in 23. And in chapter 23, Jesus says that this is in fact the second greatest commandment. The first commandment, that is the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord thy God, I'll summarize, with your entire being. And he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he actually says in chapter 23 that the entire law of God, like a massive picture, hangs on these two commandments. Those are the nail marks that the whole law hangs on. Love God and love others. But who is our neighbor? Jesus was asked this by a lawyer the Gospel of Luke records this in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And his answer to the lawyer is stunning. More on that in a minute. Stay tuned. <laughs> but during the time of Christ and prior, the command to love your neighbor was understood to mean only those in the Jewish community, but was not meant to be applied to people outside of the Jewish community, especially to anyone who was considered an enemy. So for them, the audience that was listening would have thought that your neighbor was fellow Jews. There were, uh, they were those that we were commanded to love. Although there is no specific quotation, there, there's actually no place in the Old Testament that says to hate your enemy, the common teaching of the day is if we are to love our neighbor, it must just, it must just be understood and it must, must just be implied that I'm to hate my enemy. And when Jesus says these two phrases together, they would have understood exactly what he was saying. He was bringing out the common understanding and teaching of the day. We love those in our community, but we'll disregard the command and we will hate those who are our enemy and who are outside the community. I mean, this does make perfect sense, right? I mean, it does seem logical. I love those who love me. I don't who don't. I hate those who hate me too. Quid pro quo. It's the nature of life. It's a lot how our society operates today still, isn't it? I mean, look at how tribal our American society has become. You can read lots of articles and lots of commentary on this, but America has become this thing, and really in a lot of ways the world has become this thing where we are just these tribalized groups of people and we cling to the tribe that shares my values, that shares my outlook, that shares my beliefs, that share, and, and we become these tribes and then we begin to look with disgust, we begin to look with massive judgment. We begin to look with all sorts of, of ways at those that aren't in our tribe. Or maybe these six collections of tribes share what, I, what we have. But these other 50, no, no, they're the them. We're the us. 
they're the them. And in many ways, there are professors that would say we are as divided as a country now than we were even at the Civil War. And it's almost more insidious and more dangerous because it's not necessarily over a singular issue. And it's not specifically geographic, even though the pro-life versus pro shows it's there. That issue might be a little more geographic, but largely speaking, we are very divided. Sadly, in fact, the way one group even talks about and treats other groups displays a dehumanizing hatred. People of other groups are solely talked about by their labels, their appearance, their political stance, their ideology. Oh, they're Biden people. Oh, they're Trumpers. Oh, they're, they're, they're Blue Lives Matter people. Oh, those are Black Lives Matter people. Oh, they're LGBTQ. Oh, they're pro-life. Oh, they're pro This is ubiquitous. It's everywhere in our culture. The examples are literally endless and growing right here in our own country. It shocks me. Even the most tolerant and the most loving among us say the most vile things about those who don't share their view. I mean, have you been on Twitter lately? Have you watched the news? I, well, just the other night, I watched Fox, and then I switched to MSNBC. The hatred that each side feels towards one another is palpable. So even today, I submit we live by the very same code that Christ states today. I also submit that our understanding of what it means to actually love our neighbor is very warped. But still, we like those who, who, who are like us, and we hate those who we deem our enemies. But remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching what the kingdom of God is, how it operates, what qualities it entails, and how those who live in the kingdom are to live out their lives. And so the first thing that we need to recall, Darren and I are saying this every single week because we cannot forget this. Jesus is not giving us a mere religious code and a set of rules to follow. He is not simply laying out a, a, a different morality. Jesus is going much deeper in his Sermon on the Mount. See, the religious leaders of the day who were known as the scribes and Pharisees, were focused on outward religious behavior, obeying the letter of the law, but not as concerned with the spirit and the intention of the law. They did not see where the law was pointing, and they did not understand how deep it was meant to go. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. He alone fulfills every aspect of the law that these Pharisees were so trying to live and did not recognize that this entire law was in fact pointing right to him. Those who are his citizens in his kingdom live their lives not out of mere religious duty, but from their very heart, from the inside out. Understanding that God's kingdom is concerned with far more than outward religious 
observance, but extends all the way to our heart, changes everything, or it should. God's kingdom extends to the very essence of what makes us, us. Where all of our core convictions and affections and motivations are fueled. Therefore, the king's people don't live out of mere duty, but their duty is their delight. The law of the kingdom is joyful freedom, and obedience is the only reasonable response. I love what author Dallas Willard says in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, where he wrote this. He said, the Pharisee take as his aim keeping the law rather than becoming the kind of person whose deeds naturally conform to the law. Do you see the difference? A Pharisee is just worried about keeping it. The kingdom follower says, I want to be the type of person that just does it because it's my delight. This is why Christ says in chapter 5, verse 20, just a few verses prior to this, when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if all you're looking for is a bunch of rules to follow, know this, you will always fall short. You won't make it. You will climb that ladder and you will realize, A, it's either too high for you and you can't get there, or B, you'll realize at the end, I climbed the wrong ladder on the wrong wall. Jesus says, no, there's something different that's got to bring about a righteousness in you that affects your heart and affects your person that then begins to be displayed through your deeds. This is why the heart of the gospel message is one of life fully restored back to God through this King Jesus, whereby God's mercy and grace, we are made new from the inside out. This is why we sing so much about grace. This is why we sing so much about mercy. This is why we sing that song once for all. Because it is about what Christ has done for us. That phrase, it is finished, I pray if you're a follower in here, brings deep, deep joy to your soul. Because those three words change everything for us. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This newness of life is one of a new nature, not a new, not, not a new moral burden. It is implanted in our new hearts and then extends outward to a new pattern of living which grows more and more each day by the power of the Spirit of God who dwells in every one of his people. The Spirit of God is what makes our hearts new. The Spirit of God is what seals us for the great day when every tear will be wiped away and our struggle with sin will be over. And it is the Spirit of God that works in our hearts to transform us a little bit each and every day to live out the newness He's given to us. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, which are these six sayings, these six teachings, these antitheses, these antithesis is that this is the last one of. Jesus describes how this new nature is seen and how kingdom citizens relate to other people, showing the quality of person-to-person -person relationships in the kingdom. 
And this is to be seen in the authentic motivation of our heart as we don't seek to dehumanize others with our hatred. It is not our desire to see others as objects of our pleasure to be used and discarded. That we value lifelong fidelity to God's institution of marriage. That we say what we mean and we mean what we say. And as we see in our text here this morning, kingdom citizens' love is genuinely distinct. The fundamental driver of our lives as Christ's people is to be love. Jesus powerfully tells us how far this love is to extend, even to our enemies. And oh, by the way, this love is not meant to be um, graded. I really love these people, but these people, they kind of get in. It's not stair-stepped. He continues to uphold, yes, that we are to love our neighbor. But then he tells us that our neighbor is not just those we like, who we share values and religious beliefs with. Our neighbor is literally everyone. Wherever they may be found, from those closest all the way to our most bitter enemy. This is why in Luke 10, and I referenced a minute ago, when a lawyer asks Jesus who his neighbor is, I'm sorry we pick on lawyers sometimes, Clint. We love you, man. <laughs> You're a good one. <laughs> we voted for you. Um, <laughs> um, was that a violation of church and state? Might have been. That was totally accidental. We'll edit that out. Um, yeah, post-production. Uh, do we have that? No. Um, in Luke 10, when a lawyer asked Jesus who his neighbor is, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a really nice story to us. We teach it at VBS. Good Samaritan. To the lawyer, this was shocking. Here would be how Jesus might answer it today. He would say that the hero of the story, I'm trying to figure out, is an Al-Qaeda operative. So it would be the parable of the good Al-Qaeda. It would be the parable of the good ISIS fighter. It would be the, for, for, for a Biden supporter, it would be the parable of the good Trump supporter. For the Trump supporter, it would be the parable of the good Biden voter. Let that sit with you for a minute. If your heart doesn't flutter a little bit, then you're not hearing it rightly. See, Samaritans were hated, hated, hated by the Jews. They were looked at as these dirty half-breeds, racially inferior and ignorant idolaters. And with this parable, Jesus says to the lawyer, everyone's your neighbor, even Samaritans. Jesus in Matthew 5 is then saying that citizens of God's kingdom are compelled by a love that seeks the good. Seeks the good of everyone, even those who want to do us harm and to plot our downfalls. 
that we see all people, even our most bitter foes, as image bearers of God, therefore worthy of dignity and respect and love. Listen to what reformer John Calvin said in his great work called The Institutes, where he says this, Let us be careful not to dwell on the evil which men do, but rather to look upon the image of God which they bear and whose worth and dignity can and should move us to love them and to bury their faults which might otherwise repel us. I don't know why it's doing that. That might be interference. We may need to change the channel later. Therefore, we do not seek revenge, but overcome evil with good. We bless when we are cursed. We seek the good of our enemy when they seek our harm. And we are to be kind when they are brutal. And specifically tells us directly what we are to do. Pray. Pray for them. We pray for their blessing. We pray for their good. We pray for peace and reconciliation. And we pray for their redemption. See guys, we are called to a higher love as followers of Jesus, which does not find its origin in the fallen human heart but finds its origin in God himself. It is not, it is out of his nature that we are given a new nature because the kingdom citizen's love is distinct because God's love is distinct. Do you catch that? Our love is to be distinct because God's love is distinct. We love in this way because we purposely align ourselves with our Father in heaven, who is himself love and displays this in ways that are not of this world, but far greater, far kinder, and far more redemptive. This is what Jesus means when he says to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If our righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees, then we are to pursue the type of sonship, the type of childhood posture that aligns ourselves with the character of our Father in heaven. It is a purposeful decision. Jesus is saying, because you're sons, align yourself with the Father's heart. Jesus is not saying, love your enemies and you will become sons. He's not giving you a work to become a son or a daughter. Rather, he is stating the type of character we are to pursue as sons. Imagine this. You start your, you know, we see this kind of here in our culture. Maybe not as much now as, as we did maybe 50, 60 years ago. But a, a child that grew up in a farmer's home, it was almost guaranteed that that son would become a farmer. Right? That son made the decision to purposely align himself with the desires of his father. I'm going to do what he does same type of thing. This is how my father loves. This is what my father does. 
This is how my father lives, treats his enemies. I'm going to do that too. I want to be like my father, which flows out into doing the things I see my father do. Our father is so kind. Romans chapter 2 says, It is the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. Without distinction, Jesus says that God sends rain and sun on all people, even the wicked. We read in the scriptures that God's love is most clearly seen in the sending of his son Jesus, who came and laid down his life while we were his enemies. His love seeks reconciliation. His love is patient. His love is redemptive, and it extends outward even to those who hate him. And this is seen in the fact that he sustains all life for all people every day. It is seen in the perfect life of Christ. And it is seen while the nails are literally being driven into Isaac's feet. And he says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. His love is seen in him giving up his life for his people. In an ongoing, in his ongoing grace and mercy as he continues to restore people to himself. And doing these works is not difficult for God. Jesus praying on the cross, Father, forgive them, was not difficult for him because it was his very nature. He could not do anything else but to pray for his enemies. It is who he is. This is why the scriptures say God is love. They're the only reasonable actions. And in like manner, we are to love in such a way, not out of religious duty, but because it is the rich love of God that has been poured into our hearts through his spirit, that our reasonable response is to love our neighbor as ourselves, which includes our enemies, and we seek to love enemies for their good. Though you curse me, I will bless you. Though you loving those who do good to us. Even non-Christians are called to love like this. See, a kingdom citizen's love is distinct and of a different kind from the world. And when they see it this way, they cannot stand it. This is why Jesus says if we only love those who love us, what reward do we This is how the most vile and evil act is loved. And even Hitler loved it when he saw his dog die. (laughs) Right? I love my dog. Shouldn't I have a higher call than that? Right? And if we greet our brothers, we're acting no different than non-believers, like those who don't even know Christ. Theologian Alfred Summers said this. To return for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. 
to return good
It is God's love that has made and is making us new. It is this love that is drawing men, women, and children to himself. It is this love that is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, that will finish the work he began in you and in all of his people. It is love that will always remain. You ever wondered that? These three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because when we're in heaven, guess what we won't need anymore? Faith. When we're in heaven, guess what we won't need anymore? Hope, because it'll be actualized. But the love of God will go on forever. It is the same, and, 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 and his love is patient, kind, true, and beautiful. It is the same love which, by the power of God's spirit, reshaped and loved and molded the people in our
What is more captivating to have a better good news for you than the one who rose from the dead? Who has loved you better than Jesus? If you have an answer for that, then clearly you don't know Jesus. Seek him, find him, and allow his love to change you. I promise you, he will. Will you allow the love of God to be poured into your heart to make you his child so that you are restored back to your maker and can now release this amazing love? This is a challenging passage, not because it's bad, but because I am weak. And I confess that my spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and I cannot do this apart from you. So, Father, I pray that you lift all of our eyes to see your goodness, to see your glory, to see your beautiful love, and that we would be so transformed by it that that is who we would want to be like, love we desire to be. And if there's anyone here that has not planted a flag in the ground of their life and say, my life has been redeemed by Christ, 